Before we get started, I wanted you to know that Scams and Cons will be at the True Crime Podcast Festival, August 26th to 28th in Dallas. It will be held at the Weston Park Central Hotel. For those among you who are podcasters, it begins on the final day of podcast movement, so it's easy to stop by. We'll have a table, and I'd like the chance to meet some of our listeners, so again, that's the True Crime Podcast Festival, August 26th to 28th in Dallas. I hope to see you there. So with a bit of pushing and screaming, a couple of F words, I think, as well, um, I got them back out there. And the funny thing is, they got back out there, and nobody cared. The audience didn't care. It was more, basically, people were laughing at them behind the scenes. The people being laughed at? Millie Vanilli. They were being laughed at because during a live concert, a playback track got stuck and exposed them to the world as lip-sync artist destined to win, then lose, a Grammy Award. I'm Jim Grinstead, and today we're going to talk about music scams. We'll explore whether what you hear is real, and how do some albums suddenly zoom up the charts. And you'll hear how YouTube, record companies, and independent operators use fear to scare money out of the pockets of aspiring artists. This is Scams and Cons. That's beautiful music. It's the prelude from Bach's Cello Suite Number no. 1, and it's always been one of my favorites. I recently heard it in the parking lot of a Target department store. A man and child were standing on a parking island. The man held a violin that was plugged into an amplifier. A sign next to him read, I'm single dad with three kids. Please help me for rent. God bless. The sign also included addresses for Cash App and Venmo. When someone wanted to make a donation, the boy retrieved the money as the man kept playing. When he wanted to change songs, he first consulted a smartphone, even though he was playing a cappella. Soon, he grew tired of my asking questions, so he packed up and left. He waved goodbye, but it was strange that he did so with only one finger. The music you heard behind me is not what he was playing. I was too slow with my phone to capture the actual audio. It's a recording I licensed for use in the podcast so you could understand just how good the music sounded. So let's skip ahead a few weeks. I'm in another parking lot and there's a different man playing a violin linked to a speaker. I decided to call him out because by now I decided that music scams would be a great episode. With my smartphone recording, I strolled up and asked him if he was faking the music. He quickly unhooked the amplifier, stepped away from the equipment, and this is what I got.
So now I'm standing there thinking I just busted a scammer, and damn if he wasn't the real thing. Studying for 17 years. Yeah, I'm he's been studying with school for violin. We chatted a bit, but his accent was difficult to decipher, so I'm not going to play more of it here. But before I left, he sent me off with... So how can you tell when a musician is fake or when a truly talented person is using his unique talent to make a living? Damned if I know. Maybe ask him to play Turkey in the Straw. I live in Nashville. And every single day, people with portfolios of music or guitars strapped to their backs exit the airport or a bus station hoping to hit the big time. Most will fail. Some will find success working as studio musicians or in some other part of the music business. But somewhere along the line, they have to make a connection. They need to get in front of someone who likes their music and who can connect them with someone else who has the power to advance their career. Talent is important, but luck is usually the deciding factor. That someone will likely work in A&R, artists and repertoire. Those are the folks seeking new talent and new songs. This could be your big break or your downfall. Well, I think there's some big talkers in the music industry, and I think there's people who want to be a big agent or something like that, but they kind of they just try to be bigger than they are. They're modeling scams. It's the same way. Like, hey, we're going to get you with these gigs and these gigs and these gigs. And they end up being like just low level kind of gigs. Not, you know, but everybody thinks that they're going to be famous in entertainment. So, oh, I'm going to be, you know, on, on Columbia Records or whatever the top deal would be. I'm going to be on tour for blank. Um, that's not necessarily it. I, I don't, I don't see these things as much as I used to. That was David Hooper. For 20 years, he ran a company called MusicMarketing.com, and he now hosts a radio show called Music Business Radio. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Unless your name is Faith Hill, Randy Travis, Taylor Swift, or Garth Brooks, musicians have very little leverage when it comes to their careers. They've got to catch a break, and that's where scammers lie in the tall grass. There are con artists who sell hopeful writers on the need for studio productions for their work, for cover art needed for the demo CD, and make copies of it. Then there's the cost of promoting the CD that they just spent so much money to create. Scammer A&R agents are happy to provide it all, for a fee. David says legitimate agents don't ask for cash from a prospect, but that can be a gray area too. That's one of those gray areas to me because at the same time money needs to Somebody needs to pay for it. Should it always be the manager that pays for everything? Because I could also tell you stories of people that take advantage of managers and people who donate time to artists and the artist gets a better deal and they just bail. There are certainly those guys, though, like you think about the term, Colonel Tom Parker or somebody who would come in and try to take complete control of an artist. I see, I see that. I see that probably a lot that 
people, artists give away their autonomy and they don't make decisions for themselves. They, they do whatever they want to be famous. You, you want them to be to be famous because that's all they want. They just want people to like them. For those of you who don't know who Colonel Tom Parker was, he was Elvis Presley's manager and was long accused of ripping Presley off for millions of dollars through deals that shortchanged Presley. Wikipedia says that in 1980, a judge ordered an investigation into Parker's management practices and found that Parker's management had been unethical. Meanwhile, his gambling habit increasingly eroded the huge fortune he'd built up, and he died worth only $1 million. There's a fascinating story about Parker in Smithsonian Magazine. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Then there are producers who convince a budding artist that money must be paid to radio executives or DJs to feature their music so they get greater exposure. One of David's friends shared a story about a DJ and what he did when new albums arrived. He would have a stack of records, and he, <laughs> she says, he would shake them upside down to see if money fell out. And if it did, those records went in one pile. If there's no money, the other records, you know, they were put in another pile. So it was pretty blatant early on. In fact, there's something called Plugola, which is very similar to Paola, where Alan Freed, you may have heard of Alan Freed. This is the reason the rock... This is why Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland, if anybody knows. He was a Cleveland radio DJ, and he would actually take credit. So he, if you look at early Chuck Berry records, it's not that way anymore as far as I know, but it said, written by Alan Freed. (laughs) He didn't write those songs, but he was playing them and he was making money. So he's plugging his own stuff. And and Paola worked that way. And and you look at over the years, it's changed in different things. And uh, it could be that if you do a show, Maybe for the station, for example, or some kind of promo thing, they're going to play your music. There's kind of the quid pro quo thing. Uh, these days, you don't necessarily have a, a hooker show up, a suitcase of cocaine, and a Cadillac in your driveway. Although you might, not that I'm aware of. Um, but what they'll do now is they have a, a pool. Record labels or promoters will have a pool, and not like a swimming pool, but a, they'll pool all their money together. And you don't know exactly who's paying for things, but if you are a radio programmer, for example, you can go to a conference for free. You could go to a, a meeting. Maybe it's in Hawaii at a golf course for free. If this sounds familiar, you might want to look into pharmaceutical company marketing practices, but that's another episode. This next scam employs the scammer's favorite weapon, fear. Imagine you're a music critic, and you've just played a song by a known band and posted a critique to your YouTube channel. In a few weeks, you may get a letter telling you that you violated the band's copyright, and either YouTube will have deleted the episode, or the person who brought the violation to YouTube's attention files a complaint. Now, copyright law is complicated, and I'm not going to give you legal advice, but works used as part of an opinion or review purpose are generally considered to be protected under fair use exemptions. Nevertheless, there are people who want to scare you into paying money if you want to keep that song in your review. There are sort of two major categories. There are outright trolls who know that what they're doing, they're going after people who are making fair uses or the thing they made makes no money on its own. The only money they make is through this sort of scheme. 
there is the other form of sort of rights holders who sign over this copyright enforcement job to some sort of group who says, we'll do it for you. We'll search the internet for anyone infringing upon your work, and then we will get them to either license it or we will take it down. That's Catherine Trindacosta of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's a 30-year-old nonprofit that defends digital rights. It keeps an eye on net neutrality, surveillance tech, broadband access, and much more. She calls YouTube the biggest culprit because of a technology it uses called Content ID. So what it does is when you're uploading a video to YouTube, it scans your video and sees if anything in your video matches anything in its database. And that can be a few seconds. We've seen instances where they've been told three seconds of your video is a match to three seconds of something else. And if you are a rights holder that is part of Content ID, because not everyone is in Content ID, you have to be let in to Content ID. You can set Content ID to do one of three things automatically. Either you can say, just leave the videos as they are, but send me the tracking data so I know who's watching them. You can have the video blocked and taken down. Or you can have ads placed on the video and you collect the proceeds from those ads. Which is what, according to YouTube's own transparency reports, is the vast majority of what happens, and especially in music. That last part is interesting. YouTube can place ads around your content. YouTube takes a small part of it, but the alleged copyright holder gets the rest. You get nothing. I say alleged because it's now up to you to either prove you own the rights or that it does not violate copyright law. They can appeal it, but it's a, it's a long process that can take months and that can hurt you in the algorithm if your video is going up or going down, or you're going through this whole process, or it's a time-sensitive thing. And if you are appealing, they remind you constantly that appealing could trigger a DMCA takedown, which could result in the video going down and the loss of your account and your and all your videos with being deleted. So it's it's sort of discouraged. They're sort of hoping you just bow to the system. How much do these people make from filing complaints? Trenda Costa's reporting shows it brings in about $30 billion. That's billion with a B over three years. And that's according to YouTube. YouTube also has a cute little three strikes rule. It says that if you're flagged for violating copyrights, whether that's been proven or not, they take your site down. You're done. That following you worked hard to build as a reviewer is over. Now let's say you want to avoid all of this and get permission from the rights holder. The license will require that you only speak about it in a certain positive way, it, or require you to give the rights holder a, like a final edit right. There can be, if, especially if you are going to be critical in any way and they know that you are critical, they can put into the contract and you can contract out of your fair use right to use music. It's not the right thing necessarily to pay for it. Fair use allows you to use 
portions of copyrighted material without permission or payment. It is not copyright infringement to use some portion of something for some purpose. Criticism and commentary are sort of the, the famous ones, but if it is sufficiently transformative, then it is fair use and it is not infringement. To be clear, Trent Acosta is not offering legal advice. It's information from the EFF. It gets worse. Let's say you perform a piece that's in the public domain and the content ID system thinks it sounds like a copyrighted piece. You get flagged and have to go about the process of defending yourself. If that defense involves a lawsuit, then the complainant gets all kinds of information from you, for example, your address, and that can be used to SWAT you. What that means is an actual police SWAT team shows up at your door, assuming something horrible is happening inside. Once they determine it's not, they leave. But you get the message. Pay up, or you're in for a very rough ride. You'd think Congress would be hard at work to fix this kind of thing. You'd be wrong. No! The effort's being made to make it worse! So, in the Copyright Office right now, there are a series of uh, proceedings to make things like the way Make Content ID mandatory for everyone. How delightful that would be. There's a bill in Congress right now to do the same thing. It, it's called the Smart Copyright Act to make these systems required rather than voluntary. Because as bad as Content ID is, at least if they make a mistake, YouTube can fix it because it's a voluntary thing. But if it's mandatory, they wouldn't be able to change it. They have to meet certain requirements. So that's terrible. There was a law passed a couple of years ago called the Copyright Alternatives and Small Claims Enforcement Act, the CASE Act, that has created a quote unquote, but uh, not really small claims court in the Copyright Office. Uh, for, I believe it is $30,000 in action is the uh, maximum. So instead of going to court, you can get a summons from this board in the Copyright Office where someone says you've infringed on them. And if you don't respond, you have to pay the judgment. There's limited appeal. There's, it's very difficult to end up with an actual judge. And you can opt out of it. If you get one of these, you can say, I don't want to go to this fake court. I want to go to a real court and have a real judge look at this. But if you don't respond, you're automatically agreed to it. So if you're a small creator just trying to make something that makes people happy or make them think a little deeper, you're screwed. You can appeal to the Electronic Frontier Foundation and they might be able to take your case. And I hate to like tell people like, if you ever seek out something that references copyright, you should talk to a lawyer because that can be very expensive for people. But that is my best advice. Info at EFF.org. EFF can help you or we can find you someone to help you for little to no pay. There are no fair and true solutions to these problems. Are the violin players real or fake? Must you interrogate them to find out? Is the person offering to boost your music career honest or just trying to hoover up your money? 
And if you decide to go it on your own and publish your own music, will some computer algorithm make it smarter for you to pay blackmail rather than prove you're an honest-to-goodness artist performing your own work? Scammers and con artists will always prey on the weak. Take time to clearly evaluate what risks are reasonable, and don't be quick to sign away creative rights before consulting a trusted lawyer. But magic can happen, and don't forget the words of George Benson. But they're dead wrong. I know they are, because I can play this here guitar. And I won't quit, till I'm a star, on Broadway. I wish I could play the actual cut, but I had to ask myself, is it worth the risk? Hell yes. But they're dead wrong, and I know they are. If you enjoy the podcast, please help us out by telling your friends and encouraging them to listen. Scams and Cons is available wherever podcasts are found and at scamsandcons.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Scams and Cons. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 